Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Hello and welcome along to this week's We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Coming up very shortly, I will be hearing from Owen Mackin, actor, director, producer, writer. He wears many hats, does Owen. Well, he has a new film out and it's called Here Are the Young Men. It's now available to rent and buy and he'll be telling us all about his work on that movie. Plus, Andy McCarroll and Olivia Fahey will be joining me with all the big movie stories from the week and what is worth streaming on Disney+. Plus. So lots to come in the next hour on We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Now, currently available to rent and buy is the new Irish drama Here Are the Young Men from actor and director Owen Mackin. You'll know Owen from starring in the likes of Resident Evil, The Final Chapter, and the TV series Night Flyers and Merlin. For his latest film as director, Owen has adapted Rob Doyle's novel Here Are the Young Men, which tells the story of Dublin teenagers Matthew, the nihilistic Rez, and the deranged Carney, who all leave school to a social vacuum of drinking drugs and falling into shocking acts of transgression. I spoke with Owen Mackin back in April ahead of the release of the film, but first, here's a little bit from Here Are the Young Men. I love you so <laughs> I think you look great pregnant. Has anyone ever told you you have an extremely punchable face? I saw a girl get knocked over today. She died. But you're fine. Yeah? Joseph Harding! Well, that's final big blowout of the summer. God is in his church! Ladies and gentlemen, the real man! What was in the bag, should I? What do you think was in the bag, Matthew? You knew what he was like, I told you! Owen, it's great to talk to you. And I was going through your filmography in advance of us chatting. And if you look at a lot of when you were starting out in the industry, there's an awful lot. Of, the amount of credits that you have, there's like writer, editor, cinematographer, director. And then, of course, obviously the acting took over. But you're probably best known as an actor. But by God, have you been busy behind the scenes? Can I ask you initially about when you were breaking through into the industry? Were you always thinking of behind the camera or was it always a, a balancing act of trying to do the acting initially as well? Um, <laughs> to be honest, it was actually just because uh, I wanted to make films and and I, I ended up kind of getting into acting with Emmett Scanlon at the time. And, and we both just ended up making a, a bunch of a bunch of small little kind of indie films. Um, and there was a buddy of mine called Danny Katz, who, who's, who won an Oscar for that short film Curfew. And he's had about 10 films in Sundance and South By It. And we just happened to uh, meet when we were like 19, 20, 21. And we made the first couple of films together. So it just became a thing whereby um, it was sort of people I knew who were all trying to get into the industry and we just started making films together. And then I just really enjoyed the process. And I also found that by by making films with people, I just learned how to act at the same time. Because, you know, when you're starting out as an actor, you end up with, you know, you get a small part in a show or, you know, I, I did a little things like with the BBC, if you do one episode and you have a couple of lines and it's kind of hard to sort of hone your craft. So I found myself, I go and make a short film that then became a feature and I could write a character for myself. I could make mistakes mm-hmm. and I could learn and I could just kind of figure out what I was doing. And so for me, it was like a training ground and also it was fun. 
Yes. So I, just wanted, I just wanted to make movies. But know? for you then as a director, because you now, by this stage, you've learned so much like as a writer, a cinematographer, editor. There are so many different directors out there that don't have that skill set. You know, for example, when it comes to lighting or, or, you know, you've already got that, like working on the likes of Charlie Casanova with Terry McGrann, like these were like guerrilla style movies. How does that aspect play with you in terms of trying to learn as you're going along? Was that difficult? No, it was actually it was actually super fun because, I mean, I, I deliberately wanted to work with Terry because I think Terry is a fabulous writer. So I was like, right, if I work with Terry, I'm just I'm going to learn about about, you know, the beats of dialogue. I'm going to learn about how he directs actors. And also also I get to have fun by being on a film set. For me, being on a film set is is one of the most invigorating and fun things to do. And it's it, you're knackered and you're always working 12 to 16 hours. But it's like if you're working with people who are creative and you're like, it just becomes fun. But I just um, I just love the whole process of just of just making films. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd spend hours on my own just, just staying up to four in the morning editing uh, because I just really enjoyed that. And that, that was also how I then sort of learned how to write better well, because you kind of learn about what works and what doesn't work, about story beats. Um, and I just love the process of it, to be honest. You know, I, I'm a bit of a filmer and I just like, like you know, making things. I'll be honest as well, Owen, I didn't realise just how much you have directed between your short films and then when we switch gears and then you start making features like The Inside, Cold, and now we have Here Are the Young Men, which the novel came out in about 2014 and I've had the pleasure now of watching the film and I can see shades of Danny Boyle there. There's there's touches of, of Boyle about the way you've made it. I, I personally felt, I kind of want to know, was there any touchstones for you when you set out to adapt the book that you thought, okay, there's some filmmakers I wouldn't mind, the influence that I wouldn't mind weaving into my look of the film. Yeah, I, there, there was. I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of like the idea of trying to bring some of, some of Refn's early stuff into it in terms of some of the kind of visual language. Yes. You know, um, and what I really wanted to do was, because I, I think that Rob's writing is so evocative and the characters are, are, are so fascinating and it's a really tough novel uh, and it is a really hard subject matter, but it's also really exciting subject matter. I wanted to kind of bring as, as much visual energy in, into the film as possible to kind of elevate and lift what the kind of the story and, 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 and the text and kind of um, uh, what the plot was, because it is quite heavy. But at the same time, I wanted to kind of make it fun and kind of bring through some of the energy through that. So some of the some of the visual language from that for me came from even looking at some stuff like Spring Breakers or, or, or kind of in, in La N in terms of even though that's black and white, but just in terms of the energy that comes through and in terms of the framing of that. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was it was. Yeah, it was, it was like Bronson and some ref and stuff and, and, you know, romper stomper and just the kind of the, the, the viscerality that came across and that. But I wanted to just give it a little bit more poppiness so it didn't. So it just kind of lifted everything and made it fun, you know. I love the fact that you've mentioned Nicholas Winding Refn because when you look at Travis uh, Fimmel's character, the TV host, you, now that you say it, I went, ah, oh, yeah, of course, I can see the Bronson touch there, uh, which is which is inspired. Uh, fair play on. And also with the cast that you've assembled, my God, like you know, it's a very strong cast, but we've also got an awful lot of foreigners in there too that have managed to crack the Irish accent because as you know full well yourself, when a lot of actors try the Irish accent, they can make a hames of it. Can I ask you about that working with the likes of Dean Charles Chapman, Finn Cole and Anya Taylor-Joy about 
the time spent on trying to create a very neutral Irish accent because they didn't go down the Begora route, even like Ralph Innocent, who was an inspired piece of casting there for the headmaster. Again, it's all about the subtlety and how they get the accent. Was that difficult? Um, I, I can't take any credit for their accents because because they basically did those accents themselves. Uh, and we had we had a we had a friend of mine as an actor, Chris Newman, who actually ended up helping him with the accents, and he was brilliant with it. But they they were just able to kind of nail the accents quite well. But I, I also kind of think that, you know, our, there's such a multiculturalism to Ireland as well that sometimes I was like, right, even, even if these accents feel like they could, they could be from sort of different places that they don't sound like maybe you might think they do from like, you know, from Bray or from Rohini or whatever. I said, like, that's okay because I wanted the film to kind of have that international appeal. So it became more than, more than just an Irish film. and was about the story. And then there is, there's Irish actors kind of populating the whole thing as well with, with Ferdia and Susan Lynch and, Conlet and everything, so it it kind of for me just be kind of. I just wanted it to. I just wanted it to feel real and multicultural, and I didn't want to worry too much about about you know. I wanted to make sure that the accents were right, mm-hmm. but at the same time, the most important thing was kind of creating a believable story, and and having the right actors to play those parts. But but Anya and Finn and Dean, you know, they worked really hard in the accents, and then they kind of pretty much nailed it themselves. I can't I can't take any credit. For that. <laughs> Well, well, also having the likes of Anya and Dean, if we just take the, the pair of them, for example, people will, when they see Dean, they go, where have I seen him before? And 1917, the recent Sam Mendes film, they'll definitely go, aha, exactly. In terms of how the, their presence in the film, like, like Anya's been on a great run with Queen's Gambit, for example, and the, the Golden Globe there. For you, like this can only give your film greater prominence when it does get released now at the end of the month. How does that play with you? The fact that there'll probably be more eyeballs on it because of the star power that's now in this film. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, to be honest with you, I knew I knew from the minute that that Anya and Dean and Finn and Ferdia uh, wanted to do the film that they're all going to be, you know, quote, quote, unquote, very successful and probably movie stars because the four of them are very, very talented. And you kind of knew you knew it was only going to be a matter of time whether it was going to be straight after our film or in three years or five years that that's that's what they were going to do, because they're they're all four of them are brilliant. I mean, Anya's a genius. Dean Dean is superb. Finn is Finn is brilliant, and Ferdie is Ferdie is really talented. So it just you kind of just you kind of just knew they were going to go and do these things, and um, and so I think it got lucky at the time whereby it just happened that that these actors they're all available. They already wanted to do it. And so we very much, we had to shoot that summer because Anya, Dean, Finn uh, and, and Ferdy were all available at that time. And if we didn't shoot exactly when we shot, we, we would have lost at least two of them. So we had this small window of opportunity where I was like, we have to shoot this film now. And myself and Richard Boulder, our producer, were like, this is when we got to go because otherwise we wouldn't shoot for another five or six months or whatever. We might have had more time to prep things, but then we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have these actors in the movie. You know, right. and it was a rare bubble where it's like there's this availability. Anya's got three weeks. Dean has these uh, six weeks. Finn was about to go back on the Peaky Blinders. Ferdy was going to go on to Vikings. Like we got to finish by like the first of September. Without <laughs> you, because it was just you know all kind of worked out with that. So, but you can see with your film as well, Owen, how you know you've pulled in people that have very much been in your in your career. Because I'm looking at the credits, like executive producer, you've got Paul W.S. Anderson, who, of course, you've worked with on Resident Evil. Emmett, your old pal, I should just say, I've, I text Emmett before uh, I bet the interview to let you know that, uh, to let him know that I was interviewing you. And yeah. But like you've got all these people that have been in your in your life that you've brought on board this film. So it's a real like kind of coming together side of it. 
with Paul W.S. Anderson, like he's executive producer. Why did you want him involved in this production? Like, what did he do for you with Here Are the Young Men to try and help elevate the picture? So Paul, Paul made this great movie. His first movie is a movie called Shopping. Um, yes. with, with, with Jude Law and, and I, I think some of Paul's early movies like I, I love Event Horizon and I love Paul's stuff but I also really enjoyed working with Paul because he understands cinema like in a way far beyond what I do and he has so much fun when he makes his movies and Paul just helped guide me in terms of just just with early things with the script uh, calling for some advice he kind of ju- he just kind of helped kind of just kind of shape where we we're going with the film um, and just kind of shape some kind of the kind of early production elements in turn and, and for advice. And especially for me, because I really, really like shopping and, and it was a kind of a similar budget level. And so and like we were obviously acting was actually smaller than shopping, but I just, he just has this, uh, he just understands film. Mm. So Paul was able to kind of be there as a reference point for me in terms of discussing. And then I'd send him early drafts of the script and he had, kind of bent some ideas off and kind of helped helped kind of you know if I wanted to discuss some set pieces he was kind of there to kind of uh, guide some of the kind of um some of the early drafts of the script to kind of get it where I wanted to be so and and I and I'd worked with him for like five months in South Africa and we became friends and he's just a brilliant filmmaker so you know you kind of want I like working with people who who I like working with people who I who I'm friends with who are also more talented than me because then you just learn and then you get you know <laughs> so <laughs> But I'll tell you something, behind the scenes, like when you, you're your you're cinematographer, James Mather, like I thought he did a superb job with Extraordinary and he's done the exact same here with Here Are the Young Men. And then your composer, Ryan Potesta, I'm probably making a hames of Ryan's name, but my God, like that score, it just lifts it. And I also thought as well, Owen, you did a great job with the sound. And, and I think that's another thing that really comes to the fore with your film is about how much care and attention has been put into the sound of the film. Again, the, with your editing hat on, when, when Primal Screams Loaded kicks in and the way the, that sound of that song marries with the, the pictures, when we come to Ferdia in the church, I went, now that has been very cleverly edited the way that whole sequence there came together. What was it like to edit that as a matter of interest? Well, well so Colin Campbell was my editor. And Colin Campbell did did Lee Cronin's Hole in the Ground, and and Colin's brilliant. So so like I I got like a lot of the credit for the for the opening sequence. You know, there's a lot of stuff chopped out from what we shot. So I, we probably because it was about forty minutes of this movie that, that never made it into the movie because you kind of cut, cut cut stuff for pacing and so forth. And Colin Campbell has to take the credit for how a lot of that kind of opening five to ten minutes goes along because he did a superb job of the editing and the pacing of that. And Aza Hand is a sound designer, and, and Aza works in Egg. He's done all, all Ivan Cabinet's movies, and Aza is just superb. So Aza is just, you know, he's a wizard with the design. We're really careful because he wanted to make sure that, you know, the design kind of married with the, the you know, what you're kind of feeling in certain characters' heads to kind of amplify that and to kind of bring through the emotion. And and, and then Ryan Batesta, um, He's a, he's a rock musician. Uh, he kind of reminds me a bit of how, how, like, when Trent Reznor started working with, with Fincher. Trent Reznor was a rock musician, essentially, and then got into scores. And, and Ryan Batesta just came up with all these mad, like, he designed all these really energetic but deep foreboding kind of bassy type uh, uh, compositions, which just, like, you know, you listen to them and they just lift the whole thing. So... I can't take the credit for the editing and the sound design and music because Colin and Aza and Ryan did that. And it, 
you know, what you do is you're trying to make a film to get people who are really, really good at what they do mm. and kind of just let them, let them kind of like play. And that, that for me is the most important thing, you know, because you get creative people like that and you get them to then come in and kind of put their, put their stamp on what the film is. Just before we go, Owen, as I mentioned, you know, here are the young men. It'll be out at the end of the month. We wish you well with this. Are you thinking what's next in terms of projects or do you kind of need some time now to decompress now that the film is finally going to see the light of day? So what's on the horizon for you next? Uh, no, no, no. I just I, I, I just finished. I made a movie. Uh, we just finished the post. Aza Han just did the sound design again and Ryan did the music and Colin did the editing. Uh, it was a little indie film I shot in LA in October and and, and Danny Katz shout out for me uh, he, he, Danny did like My Friend Dahmer um, oh, great. Daddy, and it's kind of a little sort of you know kind of a little bit like Carnage uh, and it was a small for a company called Illusionist in, in New York um, and then the next movie I want to make we've kind of myself and Richard Bulger working on that is kind of a true romance type natural born killers type, type movie so hopefully we'll try and make that next year great um, I just been looking forward to people getting to see this movie because we were meant to go out in cinemas last year you know, and, and you know, it's it's just been one of those ones where the one people didn't see this in the cinema, and hopefully, cinemas open up and we do get to retrospect and do some cinema. But it's got it's got to the point where it's for people to see the movie at this stage, you know, because it's, it's yes, yeah. well, you've done a, a, a cracking job with it, Owen, and I'm intrigued to see what you're going to do next. The cast is great, it's just a solid production from start to finish. And uh, Owen Mackin, pleasure talking to you, and wish you all the best. But here are the young men, pleasure, thank you. We love movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. And Here Are the Young Men is now available to rent and buy. Well, that's it for part one of We Love Movies, but coming up after the break, we'll have all the main movie stories from the week and what's worth streaming. We Love Movies is back shortly. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Now on We Love Movies, it is time to take a look at some of the big film stories from the week. And joining me as always is Andy McCarroll and Olivia Fahey from Evoke.ie. Guys, good to speak to you as always. Andy, there's been lots happening this week with all things Marvel. They've got they've been announcing their latest phase. What are we at now? Is it phase four? Yeah, it's looking like this is going to be the kickoff of phase four now. We got the announcement video. First of all, it was like a, a nostalgic trip through all the Marvel movies. And there was that you know incredible fan reaction for the end of Avengers Endgame, which made me miss cinemas more than ever. The big news to come out of this, I think, is that the Black Panther sequel is going ahead. It's going to be called Wakanda Forever, which is just a, a great name. I'm very interested to see what they do with that. Obviously, with Chadwick Boseman passing away, how they're going to handle with his, you know, his off-screen passing be addressed on screen, who's going to take up the mantle. There's a, a lot there to juggle to get that right. I'm very curious to see what way they do it. We also got announcements for Guardians 3. Captain Marvel 2, which will be called The Marvels, which will bring in Monica Rambeau from the uh, the WandaVision show. And also Miss Marvel now, uh, play, who's going to be Kamala Khan, played by Imran Vidali. That's going to be in. And we got our first, uh, well, a look at the logo for Fantastic Four and our first footage of the Eternals, which to me gave the high point of the whole thing, where Kevin Feige was talking about his meeting with Chloe Zhao, who wanted to shoot everything practical. And she made him this essentially a sizzle reel featuring a sunset which absolutely blew his mind he then saw nomadland and thought oh this isn't just a marvel thing this is her style there's these incredible sunsets and it's real and you don't have to make it on a computer it, it, did kevin feige forget like outside exists like does he see a, a dog and just think to himself well wow, that's that's really realistic that's very well done 
I was looking up, I'm going to send him a calendar of waterfalls because I just, I think that would make his head explode. I think he's been on a studio on a green screen for too long that he's kind of lost track of reality. And I think he's one step away from logging onto the matrix himself. Uh, absolutely. I think, yeah, he needs to just have a bit of a lie down does a good old Kevin Feige. Olivia, for you, like what were the standouts from the, the Marvel slate? Um, Eternals was definitely um, a standout because Cersei is actually one of my favorite characters in the Marvel comics. So getting to see Gemma Khan kind of like embody the all powerful uh, Cersei was actually quite exciting for me. Um, I was also delighted to see that we're getting like this sort of female team up with the Marvels as well. Um, Monica Rambo was one of the highlights from WandaVision, in my opinion. So to see her finally sort of Re- be reunited with uh, Carol Danvers is going to be interesting, of course, because there was a lot said in WandaVision that we're not 100% sure are they on speaking terms or what the story is there. So it's going to be very, very interesting. Um, but we're in for quite a treat over the next few years because, of course, kicking off with Black Widow, uh, July 7th, if memory serves me right. Um, and it's just going to be basically every couple of months we're going to finally have our Marvel films coming back out again. So it's going to be interesting to see the changes that they're going to make after Endgame. And I'm excited to know where it's going to go. You know, the kind of a way it's, no one was really certain what they were going to do once the Avengers era sort of ended, whereas now it's sort of taking on this new life. So yeah, it's going to be very exciting. All the pieces seem like they're really coming together now. Andy, um, Fantastic Four is going to be a real linchpin within this series because you're kind of looking at like who are going to be the, the elder statesmen of this new phase of Marvel, like Doctor Strange is being sort of talked up as taking over that Tony Stark mantle, which is big boots to fill for Benedict Cumberbatch and a total different personality type. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But when it comes to the Fantastic Four, all we know is that Ant-Man director Peyton Reed is at the helm. The fan favourites to be front and centre would be John Krasinski uh, playing uh, Reed Richards and then uh, The Invisible Woman uh, played by his other half, his real life um, other half, um, Emily Blunt. Do you think they will play to the fans and give them that fan service? Like, as a matter of interest, do you think Krasinski and Blunt would work, Andy? I think it would. I think that's just absolute no-brainer casting now. You've seen them, they work really well together in things like A Quiet Place. And I just think they're perfectly suited for that role. And you do need someone who, I think it's not going to be Doctor Strange. I think Mr. Fantastic, as he is in the comics, he's going to be the kind of the, the next stage of that as well. Like he will be the leader of that group. It's actually John Watt who directed Spider-Man. He's going to be directing Apologies. this, not Peyton Reed. So I'm curious to see if he's going to tie that in as well. Will Spider-Man be a big part of this universe? Because I know the deal is up with Sony now and they're still him and Han, whether that's going to be renewed. I imagine it will be. It's It's been mutually beneficial for the two of them and Sony trying to build their own cinematic universe off the back of that as well. But this is the one I think they have to get right. I think the Fantastic Four, that can be the new center team of the, um, the next phase of the Marvel films because we've got the Guardians and we've got Doctor Strange and people kind of have their opinions of them. So it's very hard to, to pivot that in. And I don't think Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange is that type of character that can be the one that brings them all together in a way that you know, Mr. Fantastic and, and Mrs. Fantastic do in the book. So I think that you have to get the casting right and that's the film you have to get right. And I think it's interesting that they went to the guy who, you know, you know handled the reboot of Spider-Man so well. So I think that's the one to build around next because I, I don't think the Eternals is going to be as big as they want it to be. Mm. I think Mrs. Marvel 
or Captain Marvel, the Marvels, whatever you want to call it now. Although it did make it made a billion dollars in the box of, I don't think that had the kind of the, the cultural like I didn't catch on as much as the other films. So I don't think there's as much love for that character as they would have wanted as well. And with and so many other a people. A lot of flack for Brie. Sorry to cut across you, Andy. Yeah. A lot of flack for Brie Larson. She's a very much a Marmite figure. Um, Olivia, just to bring you in on this, Brie Larson, where does she sit with you? I love her. <laughs> I, I don't know where all this hate for Brie Larson is coming from. I think she's like absolutely fantastic well more rather marvelous uh pick pick your pun but um no i i honestly don't know where all the hate has suddenly come from because even when the first captain marvel came out everyone was singing her praises and then it just seems to have been in the last couple of months or maybe in the last year that i've started noticing a lot more hate being thrown her way and i i've no idea where it comes from but in my book i think she's an absolutely fantastic actress she really gives the role of Carol Danvers her all. And I think that she's also got great chemistry with the people that she works with. You've seen it across a number of films already. And yes, she may not have been utilized to her best when uh, Carol was introduced for Avengers Endgame. But I, I, I disagree with Andy. I think even though there's kind of like people humming and hawing over Brie Larson at the moment, I do think that because of the success of WandaVision, that... Tayona Paris's appeal will definitely cross over into the movie as well so that people who were a fan of the show they'll be more inclined to go see the film even though if if Brie isn't a big enough name for them this whole sort of concept is going to be more appealing I think to a wider audience. Do you think in one way Andy that this new The Marvels which is essentially Captain Marvel 2 could be in a way maybe a phasing out of Brie Larson? I don't think they will. I think there's too much kind of tied up in in that character and she's very much the reason those will come together. I do think it's trying to pivot to uh to Kamala Khan to Miss Marvel playing the the younger character. I think that's the one they would want to break out and give a give a spin-off to disagree completely with Olivia to the shock of nobody that Tiona Paris's Monica Rambo was you know, the big thing everyone's going to get behind. I remember even at the end of WandaVision like the post-credit sequence where you know it's it's revealed that you know she's going to be moving on to you know potentially confront Captain Marvel about whatever they've fallen out about, and there was just a big, well, is that it? Like it, it's not something that seems to have caught on in the public as much as some of the other characters. But I will say I am very excited about Miss Marvel. I think that's one of the few things that the game of uh, the recent Avengers game got right, and it's the comic series at the moment that I think is is the most popular and the most kind of progressive as well. If you want to say that. Just before we um, just move on um, from all things Marvel, Andy, just on the final note on it, Andrew Garfield, he's broken his silence on Spider-Man No Way Home, which is the third installment in the Tom Holland series. And we're all feeling that it's more or less a given that we're now going to start go moving into the, the Spider-Verse, other dimensions. Has Garfield admitted that that's the case because we we all know from a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about um, all things Doc Ock and uh, Melina who's spilling the beans what about Garfield has he done the same no he's he's very much playing ball he's saying there's no truth to any of this he's not going to be in it at all meanwhile Amphrit Melina is all but telling everybody the plot of the film you've got Jamie Foxx who was the villain in Andrew Garfield's uh, Spider-Man movie he's confirmed to be in it he also shared an Instagram post with the three Spider-Men together uh, a poster that was quickly deleted then Andrew Garfield's stunt double from Amazing Spider-Man he posted pictures of himself on the set of No Way Home again they were deleted as well so if 
he's very much telling the company line and meanwhile everyone else is just being an idiot and, and spilling every bit of secrets that could possibly be off the set so I put no stock and I, I would 100% say Garfield is going to be showing up in this as well I think so too absolutely now as I mentioned we're going to move away from all things Marvel and go to the the world of fantasy because Dungeons and Dragons there is a brand new one en route Olivia and it's being shot in Belfast it is yes yeah. so all-star cast and they are attempting to bring the tabletop game of Dungeons and Dragons to life once more. It has been t- attempted a couple of times now and they've all been atrocious. Don't at me. But uh, hopefully this time they'll actually get it right because throughout the pandemic, a lot of people were actually finding ways, uh, new ways of keeping in touch with everybody. And Dungeons and Dragons being done over Twitch or over Zoom was actually something that became very popular. So it's actually probably at its peak over the last 46 years of its existence. So with 40 million fans playing worldwide. So it's a good time for them to move into maybe attempting to, to bring another film to life. This installment is actually gonna have Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez, Justice Smith, who people might remember from Detective Pikachu, Reggae Jean Page from Bridgerton, the Duke himself, and Sophia Lillis, who was in It. And then we also have confirmed that our villain it's going to be played by Hugh Grant. So all-star cast, really big names, could be great. Hopefully it will be, but we have absolutely no idea what the storyline is as of yet. So we're just going to have to wait and see. But everyone, the buzz up the north is is pretty big at the moment. Everyone's very excited to be working on it. So I just have to keep our fingers crossed, I guess. I'm kind of wondering in terms of the tone, because the writer-directors of this are uh, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldenstein, uh, Goldstein, I should say, who are probably best known for being writers on the Horrible Boss, uh, Horrible Bosses movie. And then they've also helmed Game Night and the reboot of National Lampoon's Vacation, which starred Ed Helms. Which I think it was just called Vacation. I'm kind of wondering, Andy, in terms of the tone for this Dungeons and Dragons, because Hugh Grant now, yes, he's done an awful lot of drama, but there is sort of a an arched feeling to some of the movies that he's taken on whether he's working with the likes of Guy Ritchie or he's in Paddington 2 and he seems like he's having fun in film again and I'm wondering could this Dungeons and Dragons not be the big fantasy kind of epic that a lot might be expecting but could be more in tone to something like Robin Hood Prince of Thieves that it could be a little bit more the body side of things that there's a bit more fun attached bearing in mind that it's coming from writers that have a pedigree in comedy. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the fact that they've done that with their previous films as well, like I think Game Night is one of the, the best comedies I've seen in years. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And if they take that real, you know, cynical, somewhat dark, but not too dark humor into this, I think that will subvert expectations. We've seen already, if you try and do a Dungeons and Dragons straight from the board, it doesn't really work. And I think having Hugh Grant, who was like fantastic as the villain in Paddington, just have him hammered up to 106 in this, that will steal the film. Because let's be honest, Chris Pine is probably most famous for not being Chris Evans. Michelle Rodriguez, you know what you're going to get from the film and from her and Renee Jean Page is he's there to be team sexy. So I, I hope they build it around Hugh Grant because he is just on a, another level on the career resurgence at the moment. So I'm interested from his standpoint. I'm interested because pretty much everything I've seen from the writer's director so far, I have enjoyed. So, And Dungeons and Dragons is one of those things that people assume I would like. And I've been getting 
books and statues of this for years and I have never played it nor do I have any interest in that so please stop sending me Dungeons and Dragons things there we go (laughs) Olivia have you ever had to deal with that sort of problem people sending you Dungeons and Dragons things I do actually because again this is probably one of the rare times where Andy and I agree I actually also have never played it well that's a lie I did try play once and I was just like no this is not not my bag but um my my other half he does play and uh, we have a group of friends and they all play and they absolutely love it and they they enjoy it they're happy you know I I just leave them to it um but like the number of people that have messaged me that they've picked it up over the last year and they're like oh you must play I'm like no (laughs) never have probably never will but that doesn't mean that you know it's not great for other people like I hope they do get it right because I was really disappointed in Duncan Jones's adaptation of Warcraft. Visually, wh- when it came to those big orc-looking characters, I thought they did them brilliantly. But the human characters were horrendous. It really, like your man from Vikings, it's like he wandered in from a different film, and like, it just was all over the place. And and then Paula Patton's character, the green elf with the the horns, I was like, oh dear God. So. Maybe the comedy route for a new Dungeons and Dragons is going to work. Now, we did mention Hugh Grant and he is in this new adaptation of Dungeons and Dragons, but his career almost seemed to have a bit of a resurgence playing the villain in Paddington 2. And there's some Paddington 2 news this week. Yes, Paddington 2 is now officially the best film of all time. I 100% agree with it. Um, the reason for this is because an 80-year-old review of Citizen Kane, an anonymous 80-year-old review, it must be said, where it was you know, pretty much trashed, has now knocked it off. It's 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And the next film to have a 100% rating with the, you know, the subsequent amount of re- reviews required is Paddington 2. So I, I just think that's fantastic that we've gone from Citizen Kane to Paddington 2 in one move. It, it just goes to show as well just how little the, the Rotten Tomatoes model works. They've also got their own official list, which has Black Panther as the best film of all time and Ladyboard, which is absolutely horrendous in seconds. So I shouldn't be saying this as someone who reviews films, but don't put too much stock into what critics say. If these are the, you know, if Paddington 2, Ladyboard and Black Panther are making up, you know, three of the four best films of all time. What do you reckon that when it comes to the aggregated scores um, on Rotten Tomatoes, Olivia? Do they should they be trusted? Because there is this worry that some people just go uh, to Rotten Tomatoes and they just see, like, say, "Oh, look, it's got a fresh or whatever," and they don't even bother reading the reviews; they just work off the score. Like Rotten Tomatoes, would you give much credence to the, the reviews there? The amount of times I am telling people, like, encouraging them to go see a film or to stream something, and Nine times out of ten, they can turn around to me and be like, oh, but Rotten Tomatoes doesn't agree with you on that. And I'm like, I hear. <laughs> like, it's not like I don't do this for a living or something. Um, and so it can be quite frustrating in that sense. Like, I guess why why people are drawn to it. But I always sort of say, like, films and TV shows, they're always a personal opinion. So all that we can do is advise based on our own sort of tastes and our own objectivity. Whereas for Rotten Tomatoes, it does tend to be like, especially when you have the critic score versus the fan score, they can often differ by like 50%. So sometimes a film, the fans will love, but the critics will hate. I think Venom was one of the most recent um, major polar opposite sort of scores that we saw recently, well, not recently enough, but um, it had like a bit of almost a 70% swing at one point, if memory serves me right. But so it just showed that it doesn't always get it right. Like critics were 
we can only give our advice and you know we might say that something is absolutely terrible but people who are going to the cinema who just literally want to switch off their brains and see some mindless action will be like actually I really enjoyed that that's what I wanted from that film so in terms of Rotten Tomatoes I'm kind of like is this is it really worth it is this as you know reliable as Andy was saying like it's their their selections aren't always reflective of what the best film of all time might actually be but Mm. on the other hand I do also agree that Paddington 2 is a fabulous film so it having 100% doesn't bother me as much as say Lady Bird being second on their list. All you need to know about Rotten Tomatoes is that Zack Snyder's Justice League is rated higher than every Indiana Jones film. That is atrocious. That no, I want my four hours back. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you everything you really need to know. And that is a roundup of this week's movie news. We love movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Andy McCarroll and Olivia Fahey are still with me as we're now going to take a look at what's worth streaming. And this week, the focus is on Disney Plus because M. Night Shyamalan's Glass and Unbreakable are there. Andy, Unbreakable, it's almost a film that was nearly ahead of its time because we've seen such a flurry of superhero movies since... Iron Man really just seemed to, well, not in fairness, you know, like I know Iron Man really kind of kickstarted the Marvel thing, but, but even before that, if you look at what um, uh, Brian, um, Brian Singer was doing with X-Men and it was kind of kickstarted there to a degree, you know, you could go back and say, well, hang on, it might have been Batman in 1989 with, with um, Tim Burton, but I think it was kind of around the X-Men stage where things really sort of caught fire. But anyway, I digress. But Unbreakable it is one of those films that if you were to make a realistic, as much as a realistic superhero movie as you could set in the real world, I don't think you could go far wrong with M. Night Shyamalan's follow-up to The Sixth Sense. Unbreakable. Did you get it first time out, Andy? Or was it one of those movies that, on repeat viewing, it kind of appealed to you more? Like, Where does that film sit with you? I absolutely loved it. I'm a huge comic book fan, so I was reading the books long before this. So I... I got that this was kind of like a subversion of the comic book genre this was like taking the the content very serious and like you said i do think it was ahead of its time because we didn't have the marvel universe we didn't have a lot of the dc ones i think x-men was out the same year as this so it, it came at a time where people weren't sick of superhero films i think if had it come out at the end of you know phase one or phase two of marvel when that kind of burnout was happening people would have said oh yeah this is how to do it this is like a serious comic book movie whereas at the time like, like you said we had blade and we had um the the tim burton batman films and the, the joel schumacher ones i think had we had more of a born out at superhero films i think it would have done a lot better i think there is a lot of love for it and i probably to be honest i think it is his best film it repeats uh, repeat viewings of it are much better than the sixth sense i think the sixth sense once you know the twist it kind of loses a lot of its its luster and unfortunately, I don't think he's been able to repeat that since. And that's what, 21 years ago. And we're still, oh, maybe the next Shyamalan film will be the good one. Maybe the next one will be the good one. But for me, Unbreakable is his best film. And I think it's definitely, it would be in the top 10 of my uh, best superhero films of all time as well. Well, it was one of those films, Olivia, that over the years, he teased that there would be a follow-up. And as Shyamalan's career went south, and granted, he's come back now, uh, thanks to his work with Blumhouse. But there was a stage where I don't think we'll ever see a follow-up to it. And then lo and behold, Split came along and then, and uh, spoiler alert, that ending then revealed, aha, the 
the, 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 the connective tissue that Split had to Unbreakable. And then it would lead to the final film in the trilogy Glass, which is also available on Disney Plus along with Unbreakable. How, how do you view that trilogy that as a matter of interest? Well, I think I actually watched them out of order. I didn't see Unbreakable until after I'd seen Split. Um, and I always remember sitting in the theatre watching it. Uh, I was up in, on a trip to Belfast and suddenly your one moves away from the, the counter at the diner and you see Bruce Willis there. And I kind of went, oh, oh, OK, now I see what he's doing. <laughs> and I realised, like, OK, I'm going to have to go back and watch Unbreakable then. And I do think Unbreakable is still the strongest of the three. But I enjoyed Glass and I really enjoyed Split. So I think in terms of it being a trilogy, it's actually quite a good one. And it's one that, you know, whether the others aren't maybe up to par with some of his other works, they're certainly a darn sight better than some of the stuff we had in the middle, say, between uh, The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and, say, when Split came out. Split was the film that a lot of people said, finally, Shyamalan is back. And mm. it's a title that I think is very deserving because the film itself is absolutely brilliant. And James McAvoy, oh my God, how was he overlooked for so many awards for that role? Because he had to do, what was it, 13 personalities that were almost all showcased throughout the entire film. And he did each and every one of them to perfection. Uh, Patricia still creeps the hell out of me. (laughs) And little Hedwig was also very adorable. Hedwig, is it Hedwig? Yes, Hedwig. Um, but yeah, like how he was overlooked for so many awards for that role is beyond me. And then he even took it to another level in Glass as well. Glass, look, the ending wasn't perfect, but overall, I think it was a really enjoyable watch. And it kind of tied it all up in a way that, oh, um, not to give away too much, but it almost did sort of leave it open for them to return down the line if they so chose to. Um, but for what it was, I was just like, yeah, I was very, very satisfied leaving the cinema. Yeah, I do f- feel that there, there was definitely appetite there for another film. Whether we'll ever ever see it, I don't know. But then like Unbreakable, it's something that Shyamalan has in the back pocket that maybe if the career goes stale again, he can return to uh, as a way to try and give his uh, give his uh, filmography a bit of a shot in the arm. His next film is old, Andy. Are you holding out much hope for that as a matter of interest? Not particularly. The trailer doesn't fill me with a lot of hope and he's been definitely more missed than hit lately. I just want to get in. I disagree completely. I thought Glass was absolutely horrendous. He undone all the goodwill that he had built up with, with Split and The Visit. And it was it just reminded me of that Simpsons episode where, you know, Itchy and Scratchy are going to the fireworks factory because they've been setting up this, you know, this big thing with the, the building in Philadelphia. And it's like, we're going to get there, we're going to get there. And then just ends in a puddle. And I just thought that is the perfect metaphor for this film. It just built up so much and just ended in a puddle of nothing and just horrendous. And his old film just looks like he's going back to the, the gimmicky stuff of, you know, the village or lady in the water. So not holding up much hope. And I think, you know, tagging him with the, the next Spielberg thing has just been more of a an albatross around his neck than anything he could really shake off. I still haven't seen the trailer to old. I'm, I've been trying to hold off um, watching it. But I might give it a go now just to see what, I, what I'm in for. Guys, thank you so much. As always, as we just mentioned there, the Glass and Unbreakable, they land on Disney+. Plus. 
uh, this week. So if you're a fan of M. Night Shyamalan and you haven't had a chance to check them out or you're intrigued to, to rediscover them once again, they are there, as I mentioned, on Disney+. Plus. Andy McCarroll, Olivia Fahey from Evoke.e, thank you so much for your time as always. And that's our lot for this week on We Love Movies. Thanks again for your company and we'll do it all again from eight next week right here on Spin.